I looked for a backdrop for my presentation this morning that would be fitting for curses. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything. There aren't a lot of hymns about curses either. No. <laughs> um, and so I found this black and white backdrop. And I thought, well, you know, that's moody enough, that's dark enough, that should work. And then I discovered that it, this is also eco-friendly. It saves on transmission and electricity and, and the bad stuff that we get from our computers and, and so on. So uh, at least we did some no harm in uh, choosing a white and black fat drop. My title, part of my title, the first half of the title, is taken from Proverbs 26.2. Like a sparrow flitting, like a swallow swooping, the causeless curse cannot alight. And we'll hopefully by the end of this presentation know something about what that means. So, you're being subjected once again to something I've been working on for the past five years. And that is the canonical, critical reading of the Old Testament. I uh, have done this in this Sabbath school under, over topics like uh, the covenants, the a kingdom of priests, divine anger, uh, divine acts of violence. And today we're going to do the curse, curse against people or curse on people. Uh, so here's a refresher. According to James Saunders, uh, Sanders' version of canonical criticism, there are two aspects, the constitutive and the prophetic. Uh, I find these not helpful in trying to understand the Old Testament, particularly in ethical issues, because I find the prophets just as problematic as the constitutive voice, which would be mostly Torah. So when it comes to dealing with ethics, I came to determine that there were two, yes, two aspects that I call voices, and that uh, they range throughout the canon, and one is the voice, uh, major, I mean the minor voice of God's preferred will, and the other is the major voice of God's will adapted or acquiesced to the will of the people. And the reason why this seems flipped, it would seem to be, I would say, the major voice was God's preferred will. But uh, the reason I call the adaptive voice uh, the major voice is because it dominates the text. The text communicates more to the people than it does to God's ways. So most users of canonical criticism do not employ criteria. They say that the community should have the benefit of reading the text and deciding which text is to be primary and which text is to be secondary uh, in terms of implication and ethical uh, application. My criteria really didn't come because I wanted to fulfill that lacuna. And by the way, the canonical critics have been put down for not having a criteria. And they would probably argue, well, we're more, more postmodern than we are modern. But I do think it leaves you with a very great amount of subjectivity if you don't have a criteria to follow. So I have attempted to develop a criteria, but not to fulfill the lacuna. 
My reason for choosing a criteria is because through the years of reading the Old Testament, I have noticed a pattern. And this pattern has almost been in everything that I have looked at. I have observed the pattern that there is an initial criteria. First of all, you have, I think I'm missing a slide here. Yeah, the pattern I've observed is that God's preferred will is usually expressed first in a narrative sequence. Say you're looking at all the narratives for the conquest. You take the first time that the conquest is mentioned, and that's where you find God's preferred will. So God's preferred will is usually expressed first in a narrative sequence, and then it is followed by the people's acceptance or more frequently rejection of that preferred will. And this in turn results in God's acquiescing to the people's choices, detrimental though they are, and finally this adapted will becomes a normative will of God. And I, I noticed this pattern over and over again, and, and at first I, I was a little freaked out by it. I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going off the deep end when I see this, or if this is really something to take uh, into consideration. So I have observed this pattern in dealing with these uh, issues, that I have, most of which I have brought to this class. So here's the criteria. The first one. As God's preferred will is usually first in a narrative sequence, his adapted will almost invariably follows his preferred will. And this, the next line is the part of that. This minor voice is often heard in Genesis. Genesis is usually where it starts, uh, especially the early chapters, and even more so in the creation stories. When compared to the second criterion, when compared with the ancient Near East, particularly in Mesopotamia, the minor voice speaks uniquely in contrast to prevailing views surrounding Israel. So, the, actually, the first two criteria are first in a narrative sequence, tied to creation, and then the third one is the minor voice speaks uniquely in contrast to Israel's neighbors, usually Mesopotamia. Finally, in the New Testament, the major voice loses its strength and the minor voice dominates. I'm sorry, I skipped over the prophets, didn't I? So the, third, the fourth criterion is that sometimes the prophets speak in the minor voice, and other times they speak in the major voice. <coughs> prophets are pivotal, they're mediatorial. And we'll explain that a little bit. What does it mean, minor voice and major voice? What does it mean? It's an aspect. It's, it has to do with the kind of the way the text is. Some texts fit into one way of looking at things, and the other texts fit into another way. And I have called those two different ways, major and minor voice. Okay. So now we go to the curse. Here's the reason why there's a problem on cursing people. In the case you didn't know... Uh, Western societies tend to find cursing people repugnant because it smacks of hate speech. You really are dissing people if you curse them. You're, uh, we think of cursing people as sending them to hell. Uh, that's not quite what... I don't think that's quite what biblical cursing is. Generally, uh, way Westerners do not believe in the efficacy of curses. We don't believe they do have any power over people so that anyone fears them. And we don't think it's morally right to condemn people or send them to hell. 
In the ancient Near East, however, people believed in curses and feared having one pronounced on them. These curses were, of course, deemed efficacious, but by what means? Now, there's two schools of thought on that. One school says that the mere act of speaking a curse was believed to create it via automatic mechanism inherent in language, and the more recent that held the efficacy of curses rested with the gods. So either the curse is inherently evil, or the gods uh, make them take place. The, the word and God, our gods, are not distinct, I think, in so many lines. Right. My view on curses is that I hold to a combination on both of these views. Uh, there is textual support for the notion that the language contained magical pro properties. They actually had power. Certainly, God's words are deemed capable of creating things, and I give you several references there. My word goes forth and it prospers in whatever it does. And um, by the word of the Lord's where the heavens made, and so on. When we relate this to divination, we find that the Mesopotamians believed that the gods wrote verdicts on the entrails of sheep via, sheep via signs, akin to reading cuneiform signs. They, they took that, we, you know, we, we make texts, uh, we make verdicts, and we write them down in cuneiform texts, and so the gods have done that in the entrails of sheep. That's divination. Uh, these omens created new realities unless the gods could be persuaded to revoke them. The way speech is sometimes described, it appears that certain power was attributed to it. On the other hand, outside of Israel, no ancient curse had power on its own. The gods were the officiators of its success. So my moral problem with curses is, it is this idea of hating them. Yes? Can you back up the last statement? Sure. On the other hand, Outside of Israel, no ancient curse had power on its own. I'm talking about other cultures like Mesopotamia. The gods were officiators of their success. And I, I think that a lot of Israelites had that view too. But the Bible doesn't tend to convey that as strongly. And, and we'll come to that. So how do you determine that from a biblical text? Or that was determined by other means? By, yeah, by reading ancient Near Eastern texts. And uh, what, court, what impact does that have on your thesis? Are you trying to isolate Israel's curses or the curses that are biblical versus... I'm trying to do compare and contrast. Compare and contrast of curses within the Bible? Within the, the, and outside the Bible. So you would have to use outside texts. Right. My point. Right. I always thought that that statement was not true, that curses were generally... Uh, thought of similarly in the surrounding areas. Well, there's overlap. There's certainly overlap with those views. I mean, if you just think practically, nobody likes to be cursed, cursed like you said earlier. I can't imagine that have been different. No, no, I'm talking, I'm talking specifically about the issue in the previous slides, the two schools of thought. Are they automatic or are they God-driven? So, this this last yeah. paragraph here. So you're saying that outside of Israel, it was not driven by God. It was driven by God. Was driven by the gods. Yes. In, in Israel, Israel, it it tend to be both and, I think. Depending on what text you're reading. 
Okay, and thank you for raising that because that sharpens uh, what I'm trying to do here. So, placing a curse on someone seems quite opposite to what Jesus did here on earth. Yes, he did curse the fig tree, but did he curse the Jewish nation thereby? That's a major question we're going to have to wrestle with. Uh, the very concept of a, of a curse, what it is and what it does, seems contrary to the system of cause and effect that I find prominent in wisdom literature and in portions of the prophets. I want to talk about that. I'll pause and talk about that a little bit. I'm more and more convinced that Israel had not a modern sense of cause-effect relationships like we have, but they had something similar in the way they viewed nature. And I, I was thinking about this uh, last evening. It seems that the Mesopotamians, because uh, especially in the first millennium, when power structures became increasingly bureaucratic, and you had this, this bent for conquest and control and, and tyranny, and, and to the point where you had lots of slaves, war slaves brought in, conquest slaves brought in to the temple, and they were badly abused, so badly abused they ran away. And for a slave to, be, to run away, they have to be pretty badly abused. That's what I think happened to Hagar. <laughs> is that she was pretty badly abused, or she wouldn't take off across the sands of the desert all alone. You just didn't do that. In the ancient world, it wasn't safe. So in the, in the, in the, when power controls a society, as it did in Mesopotamia in the first millennium, it disconnects that society from nature. And Israel's understanding of what we call cause and effect was rooted in the agricultural community that they were. They were largely agrarian society. And they, were, they understood that you plant something and you get something that you planted. You don't get something different. Okay? So there's this cause and effect relationship. Uh, you reap what you sow. And you obey certain signs of the heavens if you want to get your crops in. And, and so on. So they did have this, and I think they were more strongly rooted in it than anywhere else in the ancient Near East, except possibly the Canaanites. Though historically, if you go to the second millennium, the Canaanites were pretty power-based as well, with major uh, fortresses and what have you. So I, I, wanted, just, I wanted to inter, interlude that uh, right here, uh, because I think it will help us in understanding this. So my question is, can my con canonical critical method resolve this issue? Let's find out. So let's begin. The very first curses. Um, my students tell me occasionally that Adam and Eve were cursed. And that's a, a presupposition that a lot of people have who read the Old Testament. That's not true. There are only two things that are cursed in Genesis 3. And with apologies to Brian, the serpent <laughs> and the ground. I don't believe it was a snake. Well, I was going to tell you that it wasn't a snake. <laughs> if, if you objected. <laughs> Even then, these curses, the passive participle is used. 
And a formal curse statement usually say, may such and such happen to so and so. And particularly, uh, one scholar has determined that the jussive, which has no meaning to you, I realize, but it's a form of the Hebrew verb, uh, the jussive and the imperative are the two verbs that are used in a formal stated curse. This is a cal passive participle. It's a statement of reality. It is not, I have cursed you, or I am placing a curse, or may you, etc. The curses of the serpent and the ground do affect the human beings. But I would like to propose to you that this is God's way, preferred way, of doing curses. Number one, yes, Ross? If it's not a direct action, but it's a reality, where did that come from? It comes from it comes from the statement, the rest of the clause, because you have done this. So that's the cause and effect. That's the cause effect. So it's natural consequences? That's what I think. And they would not express it in those terms. But they understood there was a mechanism between action. And and, and this fits with how I've seen this pattern develop. In the canon, this comes to poetics. You can help me out, Peter. I understand you're the expert in the English department on poetics. <laughs> well, I was, I was told this by a very reliable source, somebody who's here, but I won't. I can't <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> poetics, by the way, is not poetry. It is the... the the uh, structure of writing and how it conveys meaning. And the poetics of the text, I have found that there is conversation between these voices. And that conversation is not just words to words. It is words to action, to action to words, and words to words and action to action. All of that is conversation in the Hebrew text. Yes? I keep going back and forth to my concept of curse today, which is calling names and... Sending people to hell and damning them. But these were, you would say, I wish you to go to hell. Yeah, I wish you to to suffer. (laughs) And basically it would come true. And that's what made the old curses. Yeah, And, and, and the question is, what made it come true? And that's what I'm trying to establish is that the minor voice of God's referred will suggests that it is rooted in the action that causes it. Because both these curses on the serpent on the ground are because, because. Now there's something I have at the very end because I thought of it finally last that I'm going to intercept here. There's something that struck me that I never thought of before and I wish I had. And that is that the serpent is cursed because of something the serpent did, and the ground is cursed because of something the man did, but the woman, there's no curse associated with her actions. Childbirth? Pain in childbirth? That's not a curse. That's a, that's a, that's a consequence. There's no formal statement of you are cursed. And that's why we say there's only two curses in the text, the curse on the serpent and the curse on the ground. And I know I have support from Jacques Lacan, uh, who is not only a Hebrew scholar, but uh, 
a uh, Jewish Hebrew scholar. Yes. So the, the structure of these curses would be comparable to say uh, because of your smoking habit, your lungs are cursed. <laughs> very well done. That's a very good example. Yeah. Thank you. Jean? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I just want to know why uh, Adam and Eve were spared from the curse. Why? Because God doesn't like cursing people, maybe? We're, we're going to follow this through. Uh, the curse of Cain. Who curses Cain? There is a curse there. Abel's blood cries out to God from the ground. And the ground is forced to consume it's his blood. The ground revolts against Cain, refusing to bear crops. And the way I read the Hebrew, Cain is cursed by the ground, not from the ground. That's a literal reading of the preposition. But that means by. He is cursed by the ground. The ground is going to revolt. It will no longer grow crops for him. And again... God doesn't curse Cain. The very first curse placed on human beings is pronounced by a human being, not by God. Noah curses his youngest grandson, Canaan. Now, this curse was used historically by slave owners and their supporters as upholding slavery. In recent times, during the talks meetings, a strong supporter of male headship theology admitted that slavery could be biblically justified if slave owners followed biblical laws for how to treat slaves. This is a consistent example of a linear reading of the Bible that places every text on equal par. Can you say what TOSC means? TOSC is the, I forget what it stands for, it was the committee that was... Task Force, uh, wasn't it on coordination, I think is the other Well, Task Force on Ordination... Study committee, yeah, something like that. Theology of ordination study committee, yeah. Yes. So the question is, does this text support slavery? Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. We're going to be coming back to that at the end. We need to move. The first divine curse on humans now comes. So first, so here's the pattern. Initially, God doesn't curse anybody, but once a human being does, and then years and years later, human beings are doing it all the time. Now God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name's great, name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, which is a different verb. There's two verbs to curse. Uh, the one who curses you, kalal, I will curse Arar, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You need to know that the one Arar that God uses is the formal one for making a formal curse against someone. And the Kalal one has a wide range of meaning. It doesn't necessarily always mean to curse. It can mean to simply disrespect someone. So here we have the first instance of God cursing someone. Surprisingly, considering how curses were viewed generally, this kind of direct divine cursing does not occur frequently. Given the patterns we have seen in Genesis 1-4 to and the apparent divine resistance toward cursing a human being, 
seems fair to suggest that this now reflects the major voice of God's will adapted or mediated to the choices of the people who will hear of Abram's call. The same is true of all other places where God is said to curse people. Now we come to creation. First Genesis story of creation contains only blessings. Blessings on sea and air creatures, several blessings on the first human beings, and a blessing on the seventh day. Not a curse remains in sight. Second Genesis story of creation contains the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The warning of death remains open to the possibility of intrinsic results. In no way does it resemble a curse. Instead, it serves as a consequence of disobedience. And, and what happens is that a lot of times scholars do not recognize that fine nuance of difference between simply, these are the consequences of disobeying me, and these are curses. And that's partly because the, the justive form isn't always apparent. These two chapters reflect God's ideal will in terms of his intention in creating the world and his purpose for it. He created it for blessing, not for cursing. Now we come to curses in Deuteronomy. Yes? Do you have to have the language of curse for a curse? No. No, there's that justive or imperative form where may such and such happen to so and so. So, yeah, if I were to do an absolutely thorough study of this for, um, say, a dissertation level, uh, I would have to study absolutely every possible instance where that happens. I'll, I'll mention that a little more about that when I come to the prophets. There are definite curses in Deuteronomy. Some claim there are curses in Leviticus 26. I used to think that, but the, I looked at the NRSV last night, and it did not show curses, it showed punishments. And again, this is where it gets iffy. So I went to Lagos and I started looking, okay, are these possibly justive forms? No, they're not. They're full-fledged and perfect forms. And, and that's the difference between cursed language and not cursed language. Unlike the Sinai Covenant in Exodus that contains no formal curses, Deuteronomy seems to pattern the same covenant after Assyrian treaties that sometimes highlights curses. Consequently, there are few blessings with a nod to the Hittite treaties, possibly. Assyrian treaties had no blessings, only curses. (laughs) Uh, Examples of curses in Deuteronomy include, Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed you shall be in the field, cursed you shall be in basket and kneading bowl, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the increase of your cattle, and the issue of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you disaster, panic, frustration, and everything you attempt to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. Those are curses in Deuteronomy. That's not all of them, but those are some of them. Here are examples of curses from Ezra Haddon's succession treaty. May Asher, king of the gods, who decrees the fates, the decrees, decree an evil and unpleasant fate for you. May he not grant you a long-lasting old age. Notice the involvement of the gods here. It's very clear. Or may he not grant you long-lasting old age, the attainment of extreme old age. May our new king of the gods let disease, exhaustion, malaria, sleeplessness, worries, and ill health rain upon all, you, all your houses. May sin, the brightness of heaven and earth, clothe you with leprosy. 
and forbids you entering the presence of the gods or king. Roam the desert like a wild ass in the gazelle. May Shamash, the light of heaven and earth, not judge you justly. May he remove your eyesight. Walk about in darkness. May Marduk, the eldest son, decree a heavy punishment and an indissoluble curse for your fate. This is treaty. Yeah. Ezra, Ezra Haddon's succession treaty. Now, now I want to say that don't think that Deuteronomy doesn't put God as the force behind the curse. It does, if you read it all in context. So there's there's fair amount of similarity. Yes. To the question I had earlier about the difference between Israel and the surrounding nations, they look very similar here. Or wasn't your point before that they're different? In the beginning, they're different. In Genesis, they're different. But See, I'm reading. Wrong, I'm reading canonically, starting with Torah. Historically, also, I mean, Deuteronomy yeah. was later than the right. earlier texts. Right. right. So you're saying there's some change, there's some evolution in the thinking regarding curses. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying there's more and more adaptation to surrounding cultures. So similarities. The styles are very similar. The nature and kinds of curses overlap. Both kinds appear to invoke the respective deities, and there are differences. In Assyrian treaties, the gods are invoked practically consistently throughout the. Whereas a set of curses, Eilis, do not invoke Yahweh directly. But there are others. If we apply what follows, what may simply follow from the curses is that Yahweh is invoked, but it's not as direct and emphatic. An inclusio, an interesting inclusio, exists in verses 15 and 45. This inclusio is a frame for a, a number of curses. But if you will not, oh, this is verse 15, if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments and decrees, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Notice the curses are coming upon you and overtaking you. All, now here's verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you, pursuing and overtaking you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God by observing the commandments and the decrees that he commanded you. So thus the frame, at least, of some of these curses in Deuteronomy autonomizes the curse almost as an entity itself with, an intrinsic, with intrinsic powers. Now what this suggests to me is that in Hebrew thinking, uh, the curses would overtake you if God removed his protection. In other words, he just stopped uh, holding on to you. The two passages that I uh, cited, Deuteronomy 8-45 and Vassal Treaties of Ezra Haddon, differ in that the latter stresses the deity's role as the executor of the disaster, while the former intimates that it is the very power inherent in the curse that causes the destruction. As we will find, Jesus will clarify this point. So I have in other venues posited the final form of the Sinai Covenant of Exodus 19-24 speaks in the major voice with the exception of 19.6. I now suggest that in this context, compared with the Deuteronomic form of that same covenant, the Exodus form <coughs> comes closer to the minor voice of God's preferred will within the Deuteronomic form, given after the golden calf incident, Kadesh Barnea, Moses' failure, and many other life-altering situations. 
While the Deuteronomic presentation, resembling as it does some Assyrian treaties, decidedly represents the major voice of God's will adapted to the will of the people. The Deuteronomic law also allows positively for a king, like all the nations around me. So likewise, like the nations around them, they got treaty curses in the covenant. The prophets. The prophetic voice operates in a mediatorial role, often reflecting God's preferred will, but equally often speaking the major voice when the occasion demanded in order to be heard and understood. The only prophets to use formal curse were Elisha, on the boys who taunted him, and Jeremiah. By Elisha's time, cursing persons was likely an acceptable practice in Israel. Jeremiah uses the curse and curse formula more frequently than other prophets. Uh, but Ezekiel also uses curse forms some, but more frequently speaks in a declarative voice, and he speaks the fulfillment of the curses in Deuteronomy. Though Ezekiel utilizes ancient Near Eastern treaty forms, Jeremiah parallel, tre parallels treaty curses more. Both apply the curses to the breaking of the covenant. So I, I think that the prophets really are speaking mostly in a major voice when it comes to curses. Now we come to the Psalms. Out of 150 Psalms in the Psalter, only 6 to 14 Psalms bear the form critical designation precatory Psalms. <clears throat> Those are psalm, curse Psalms. However, depending on the scholars consulted, anywhere from 28 to 39 Psalms contain at least one verse of imprecation or of malediction. The number 28 is probably most accurate since Alex Luke takes only those verses that contain verbal forms, Joseph and imperative, that grammatically form a curse. Thus, less than 20% of the Psalter contains one or more curses. However, given that most of these psalms are prayers, we need to ask if they stand as curses or petitions, or were all curses some form of petition. I'm keeping in mind here that when Jesus gave what we call the Lord's Prayer, most of the petitions were imperatives. I wasn't going to do wisdom literature, but then I thought about Job. <laughs> Proverbs, and this is a synopsis. I, I didn't want to take the time to map out all the data. Proverbs most likely seems concerned about avoiding getting cursed, usually by persons. And we, then we have this one that's like a sparrow flitting, like a swallow swooping, a causeless curse cannot alight. Causeless means without reason or without cause. It can mean either one. Ecclesiastes seems to take a dim view of cursing. Job is fairly complex when it comes to cursing. The Satan complains to Yahweh that he has blessed the work of Job's hands so his possessions overflow the land. The Satan then tells Yahweh twice that if Yahweh smites Job, Job will bless him to his face. That's trying to translate a curse in all versions, um, but it's blessed in the Hebrew. I won't take the time to unpack that. Uh, Job curses his birthday in two sets of seven. And Job states that the portion of the wicked in the land is cursed. When God restores Job, he doesn't bless him, but does what he did before. It seems that Satan is more into blessing and cursing than God. Jesus. Jesus applies the term accursed once, directly to persons in Matthew 5, 41, on those who do not take care... Uh, on those who do not care, take care of the needy and marginalized. 
He also does order a curse on the fig tree. And you could say Jesus pronounces a kind of malediction on the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Keep in mind, Matthew's gospel is structured a little bit like Deuteronomy. Uh, that is at least the Deuteronomic covenant. Only Jesus tends to flip some things on end. Instead of state, starting with history or stipulations, he starts with blessings, moves to the law, then later to woes. But instead of using the treaty or covenantal word for blessed, Baruch, Jesus uses a word in the Psalms that means happy, Asher, Asher. Instead of using the verb for cur curse, Arar, or Kolom, Jesus uses woe. Both of Jesus' choices represent intrinsic <clears throat> cause and effect relations. And Jesus tells his followers, bless those who curse you. Paul echoes Jesus, bless and curse not, in Romans 12, 14. And now you have a mixture. Hebrews 6, 8, but if the ground produces thorns and thistles, it is to be worthless, and on the verge of being cursed, its end is to be burned over. With it, the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. James doesn't like cursing. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. This is Peter now. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. And then Revelation 22, 3. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. Uh, interestingly, this is a side note, but I can't resist. Uh, interestingly, Revelation 22, 18 to 19 utters a warning against adding or taking anything from the book. That, and this warning resembles ancient Assyrian warnings against altering tablets that invoke the gods. In Galatians 1. We haven't come back yet. That's the next slide. Sorry. <laughs> Since the quarter is on Galatians, I thought we would end on Galatians. How would you compare or contrast this, the cursed language in the Gospels um, to um, uh, Matthew 18 where Jesus just sort of indicates that it would be better for you if you know, your situation is so bad that yeah. he doesn't it, it, it doesn't directly curse people it sure seems to indicate that there is a but it's always that it's always that curse coming out of your actions it's always that kind of curse. And that's a very different curse than the kind of curse that, let's say, the Assyrians understood cursing to be. It doesn't come from your actions. It comes from people who are angry at you, or gods that are angry at you, when they place a curse on you. Uh, Hebrews 6.8, is that where they get the, um, you know, many, many cultures burn, burn uh, the wheat and the uh -huh. grow. You know, the Aboriginals, the Red Indians. Yeah. yeah. So it is this, it's what this is saying, that to end the thorns of the missiles, to burn it. Yeah. Is that what that's saying? Or it's just saying, it's point? talking about the ground. And the ground is, is kind of representative in the New Testament of a heart of a person. So if, if your heart brings forth thistles and thorns, it's going to be burned over metaphorically. 
This is not literal. This is metaphorical. Steve? This is actually a kind of a logic structure question that is in the first sentence and also the second bullet point. The not, could it, does it, is there something intrinsic in the text that says that that only applies to the curse, or could it say, you shouldn't bless or curse? Which one are you talking about? The, the bless and curse not. Could, is that saying, don't bless or curse either one? And also no, it says bless. It's it's bless them, don't curse them. Right. So the, so intrinsic in the text, the not only applies to the curse. Right. Not to the blessing. Not to the blessing. And similarly, the, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. This ought not to be so. Could you read that as we shouldn't be blessing or cursing? Um, it's not our place to do that. He's talking about controlling the tongue. Yeah. And it's, it shouldn't come from the same mouth that we bless and curse. You do one or the other. <laughs> Be either hot or colder. <laughs> yeah. Back to what he was talking about. I really think that this whole context is really talking about God's people. This is how God's people should act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you say that you belong to me, then you shouldn't be cursing each other. <laughs> and when Jesus spoke to the crowds, it was Jewish people, people who knew the covenant. So he was able to relate, what's going on here? You know the covenant, yet you're acting, you know, alternatively to the co- covenant. So my question then is, if this is applying to, to people who know better, who are supposed to know better, what about people who are not God? Um, that's where we come back to Matthew uh, Matthew, right here. Bless those who curse you. That's in the context of your enemies, and that would be the Romans. So the, what I'm saying is the New Testament is a little bit mixed. Some major voice comes in there. That's not abnormal. Let me just make a categorical statement here. It is also my thesis that all language is human, and therefore major voice. So rhetoric alone does not determine meaning. (laughs) (laughs) So when I teach the transition from Aristotelian thinking to Baconian science, I talk about how language for pre-Baconian Western and therefore influenced by New and Old Testament society uh, thinks that language has to do with affinity, right? that it uh, describes things through uh, performance, as in like the example of I smoke and therefore my lungs are cursed is far too Baconian, which is which operates through what we now call causality, which is probability. Right? Uh, through observation, we determine that if you smoke, your lungs will get messed up. Whereas for uh, pre-Baconian society, language operates in terms of um, actually constituting the thing because the hippopotamus has an antipathy for the rat, or I'm sorry, the alligator has an antipathy for the rat, um, or uh, if you put these two things next to each other, you will create this third thing, despite the fact that there's no, what we would now think of a scientific causality for that thing, if instead 
um, that those two entities have a kind of affinity for each other, they will create this third thing. So language is therefore, like when we think of, uh, I always use the Tempest, so we think of Prospero um, conjuring things with his language, that's because language actually makes the thing. So in, I, I'm really intrigued by it because I think it's interesting, because uh, this is a sort of shift mo movement from Hebrew thinking to Greek thinking. But the, the idea of causality between those two is also slightly different, right? Where the Hebrews are dependent on um, affinity and God's language being a performative thing, and the Greeks are more interested in teleology, which is sort of... Well, the Greeks, yeah, the Greeks move towards static, and uh, what's the opposite of time? Spatial. And the Hebrews are dynamic and temporal. So, so, so it, yeah, it is the action is the thing, so the and that's why action is language. It's part of the conversation. Okay, yeah, because when the Assyrians are calling on their gods, they're saying, "Here's reality. God's entered to alter." Whereas for the Hebrews, because time and language are conflated, in God. See, I, I, I believe that the Assyrians and the Babylonians contributed greatly to where the Greeks went, okay. the, because they're now finding a lot of yeah. continuity between the two cultures. Can you repeat that? Uh, they're now finding a lot of, a lot of uh, historical continuity between the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Greeks. Uh, yeah. I, I imagine that just like our society and most societies, that there would be a disparity between how much uh, and how the efficacy of utterance uh, has the capacity to make things happen. Well, uh, we don't admit the it. Intellectuals and the, and the crowd that yeah. would be spoken we, we don't admit it, but we create reality all the time by language. Absolutely. And, and, we, and we maintain some of the same superstitious kinds of things. If you're like, if you can be an ER physician, or you can be a, a lieutenant on a, in a large police department, you know, with a master's degree, and you still do not let people use the word quiet. <laughs> To describe your shift, because you really believe that it that it impacts the rest of the shift to use the keyword. Well, and I've seen people discipline for using it. <laughs> That's a much more concise version of what I was trying to say. So there's two different versions of that performativity. The Baconian one, like I now pronounce you man and wife. We don't actually think that that's making a, I think, a scientific change, right, in those bodies, but it's that sort of, um, it's magic, right? The words create a reality. Our people, even our, sort of our pew people, sort of our uh, uh, workaday mind, can at the same time sustain some of those uh, things in the same category as full moon myths and that sort of thing. Uh, but they, if there's a group that they see as uh, an out group, um, then they'll call their utterances spells. You know, they're Jamaicans or whatever. Okay, let's move to Paul and Galatians. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's a lot of cursing. But he assigns it to the law. And he's saying there's a way out of the curse. So he, so, and I think the law he's talking about here is Deuteronomy because he's fighting Deuteronomy. So I think, I don't think he's endorsing that. He's saying that is not the way out. Now, having said that, Paul actually pronounces a curse on anyone who proclaims a different gospel. Let him be anathema. Which is one, it's so strong that some translators translate it, let him be a damned soul, or let him go to hell. Is it a different category of curse if you're saying you want the person to do it to themselves, like in chapter 5, the emasculation <laughs> Let them emasculate them. I wish. They, actually, he says, "I wish they would go all the way." He doesn't really utter a curse, <laughs> but it's close. <laughs> that wish is volitional. It's translated though in several of the English translations. That's because the word "wish" is volitional and a curse is volitional. Right. There's one that's maybe even worse than that. Um, and that's in First Corinthians 16. Uh, verse 20, set the very end. It says, All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, all. If anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. And then he says, immediately afterwards, Aaron, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I love you. <laughs> if you don't love the Lord, he should be cursed. Again, it's passive. He should be cursed. This is closer to active. Let him be anathema. It's still passive. But it's a little stronger. I would like to suggest that Paul will use major voice deliberately when he's speaking to people who believe only major voice texts. And I would like to suggest that this is an example for us to use in the debate over male headship theology. <laughs> Here are my conclusions. Here are my conclusions. I use Jesus' methods of interpreting the Old Testament that he applies to the authorization of Moses to divorce in Matthew 19, 9. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts were unyielding, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. Applying that method to the curse on persons, Genesis is clear that God's preferred will in the beginning was to refrain from cursing human beings. Canonically, the first curse on on a human being was pronounced by Noah on his grandson, not by God. Yet this verse has been illegitimately used to support slavery with a divine injunction. In keeping with my method, eventually God pronounces a curse on anyone who curses or takes lightly Abram. Why? Cursing human beings has become acceptable and expected. The giving of the Sinai Covenant in Exodus 19 to 24 includes no blessings or curses. Indeed, the law is in its most prominent is its most prominent feature. Not until Deuteronomy 27 and 28 do blessings and curses, mostly the latter, occur. Since they resemble the blessings Hittite and curses Hittite and Syrian of ancient Near Eastern treaties, they belong to the major voice of God's will adapted to the will of the people. 
The Sinai Covenant of Exodus, therefore, while still in the major voice, is more minor than its recap in Deuteronomy. Consequently, and here I put in italics, we should think of these voices not as stark separate categories, but as a spectrum in which they overlap. Because the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but also Malachi, who utilize terms for curse and other ramifications, parallel ancient Near Eastern treaty curses as well, they too speak in the major voice. The Psalter often resembles the voice of the people and thus speaks in many ways in the major voice. Given that the language of scripture is human and not divine, all rhetoric should be viewed as belonging to the major voice of adaptation. Like it does in other topics, wisdom literature takes a dim view of cursing persons, recommending avoidance either of getting cursed or cursing, or relegating it to Satan. My going into this area of the Hebrew Bible may seem divergent, but I find often that wisdom literature critiques faulty interpretations of Torah. According to Criterion 5, the minor voice generally returns in the New Testament and there becomes dominant. In the case of the curses on persons, there seems to be a mixture. This criterion positively applies to Jesus for the most part and for Paul and James. Peter stands out as labeling people a curse. And Revelation refers to the wicked who aren't allowed into the New Jerusalem as a curse. However, only Paul pronounces a curse on anyone who proclaims the gospel that contradicts his own. Note, this curse is in the beginning of Galatians. Since in the same book, this gospel includes a way out from under the curses tied to the law in Deuteronomy and proclaims that those who try to earn salvation by keeping the law are under a curse, it seems clear that Paul's deliberately using the major voice because of the unyielding hearts of those who advocated legalism instead of trust. In this, he sets an example for how to use the major voice of Scripture. If we had, t- if we had time, we'd do questions, but you've been talking with me all along, so we're going to assume that. Mary and Nancy? I feel like that when he says, but Jesus became a curse, he, he's referring to the minor voice. Major voice, you mean. Uh, no, no, he's saying Jesus undoes all of these yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. That's himself unwinds everything. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like Paul invokes the whole structure of the major voice and then shows the way out. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Will you kindly expound on that statement about Jesus becoming a curse for us? Tell us more about it. Well, Paul, Paul is saying, under the law, if you don't keep the law, according to Deuteronomy, you have cursed. So Jesus takes on those curses and dies that death, and therefore he shows us a way out. It's just, just what Nancy said. Does that, I don't know if I feel the same, does that set up the law as a sort of Assyrian style? You know, the law is a God that will curse you and then do this there? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it came to be seen that way. I don't think it was original that way. If, if, you study the, if you study the structure of the law, I don't know, I don't, you don't think you were here yet when I did the Ten Commandments here. The Ten Commandments are actually seven and seven commands. Seven in our relationship with God and seven in our relationship with others. And those commands parallel each other in our in relationship with each other. They also have a chiastic structure. And in those, those different structures of the Ten Commandments, it becomes clear that you're dealing with descriptive law, describing how relationships work. 
or are to work. So and since there's no curses in the Exodus form of the covenant, I think that Deuteronomy is the Assyrian overcast. Yeah. Since uh, in the beginning you said other nations didn't believe that, that curses from, uh, were effective if they weren't tied to the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the point of Balaam's curse? I'm trying to think whether he invokes... Well, he doesn't end up cursing God's people. He is from Mesopotamia, according to the story. He would invoke... He would, he would be invoking Israel's God against Israel. Because I think because he's hired to, to curse Israel, he wouldn't, he wouldn't... At that time period, you don't have a Syrian... I mean, he's not a Syrian. He's probably a Mari from Mari. Uh, that culture is not looking at Israel with any kind of malice or interest, either one. Uh, so he wouldn't be using his gods. He'd be using Israel's own god. What's your answer for number two? Oh, did I, I actually did get there. <laughs> when Jesus cursed the fig tree, did he indirectly curse the Jewish nation? I say no. I think it was an illustration of what was going to happen intrinsically, but not... Not a direct person. I remain really profoundly influenced by Marilyn McIntyre's book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. Partly, I think it's personal because I, I have a history of being kind of a blurber. And I'm still working on thinking carefully before I allow things to come out of my mouth. But this idea that words, what we say to people, that is action. It is a behavior, and what we say actually influences our thinking and their thinking. And so... You can utter a lie uh, in order to get your way as a power, a base of power, and ultimately convince yourself that it is the yes. truth. Yes, yes. And we Especially if you utter it enough times. Yeah. And we are all capable of being delusional in our own ways, and thinking to something if we say it enough. I have a t-shirt talking of t-shirts that says don't believe everything you think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think we need to wrap it up. Um, Thank you all for your participation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, We thank you that you have shown us initially not to curse people. And when we started doing it, you adapted to our ways and then redeemed us from it. We ask that we will truly choose wisely what we speak and how we act. In Jesus' name, amen.